There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode one of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. For our inaugural episode, I spoke with Lois Gibbs, who became a nationally known Toxic Avenger as a leader of the neighbors who successfully fought to be relocated from the contaminated community of Love Canal in upstate New York between 1978 and 1980. Lois moved to Virginia and in 1981 founded the Citizens Clearing House for Hazardous Waste, later renamed the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, which helps people all over the country organize and fight threats from facilities poisoning their communities with toxic chemicals. We started out talking about her new puppy and her sabbatical, and then took up her current work at CHEJ. Lois's humor, strategic thinking, and undiminished passion for fighting injustice and protecting people were in full effect throughout our interview, and I was honored to speak with her. Here's my interview with Lois Gibbs, Recorded in February. <laughs> How old are your kids that you just have a puppy? That's uh... I know. I got a puppy because now I'm not traveling. Oh, uh, okay. So, you know, when I was traveling, I couldn't, I couldn't have any pets, really. I mean, I have my children, which are sort of a little more than pets, right? <laughs> but, yeah. But now, I, you know, I'm, I'm only working part-time. Mm-hmm. I'm actually on a sabbatical now. Right. I was going to ask you about that. We're both on our sabbaticals. And, and look what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you got a puppy? It's really nice that I could actually have a pet now because I could not before. Yeah, I, I just I just felt it was not good to put your pet in storage over the weekend. <laughs> you know, and it's like every weekend. So every right. weekend I would travel. At least, you know, I travel once a week. Um, and then during the week I met with work. So, like, what what am I going to do with a pet? That would just be cruel. So, right. so now – don't have that problem. <laughs> That's great. So yeah. how long is your sabbatical for? Till April. Okay. What do you do you have a plan for the sabbatical or is it a it's got a structure or is it just a an actual break from everything and a kind of a reset? So the structure is trying to see if I can find somebody to take over the organization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the best way to do that is get the hell out of the way. Right? Yeah. You know, it's it's hard. So yeah, so I'm doing that, and then I'm going beach hopping. I've learned how to beach hop. I got a new, I got a new car, Rev Four Hybrid. Oh, nice. yeah. yeah, and so I just put the dog in the back, and I'm in the front. And we just came back from Fort Lauderdale. Oh wow, you're really going pretty far afield. You're not just heading out to Bethany or Rehoboth. No, it's too fucking cold. <laughs> I could go where it's warm. It was 82 degrees. We're sitting on the beach, and you know it's really nice. Yeah. I came back because I had to get my vaccine. So I got my vaccine last week, which was really good. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's you know, if you're really careful, you can really travel and do stuff. But you just have to be careful. But doing it just the same. Taking the risk. I'm a risk taker, as we all know, right? Yes. Yes. You're the, <laughs> you're the, you are the, 
<laughs> you're in the Mount Rushmore of risk takers. Yeah. So like, you don't take any risks. You're not going to have any fun. You're not going to have any accomplishments, right? My life is about, I want to accomplish fun as much as I want to accomplish social justice, right? <laughs> have you, uh, have you been able to do enough of the fun part? Cause you've certainly spent a lot of time on the social justice. I mean, that's, Mm-hmm. Have you? No, I, I have because one thing that I've I, I've always been very 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 clear about is I have vacation. I take vacation. I don't do emails on my vacation. Mm-hmm. I don't. We go to. I mean, we literally go to the beach every year. The same beach, mm-hmm. uh, the same two weeks of every year in July. Um, and you know, all my friends come, my family comes, whatever. And, you know, nobody from work can bother me. And, you know, so, so, you know, it's, and I think that's what makes a successful person that doesn't get burnt out is you really say, this is my time. This is about me and my family and my friends, and you can't come here and this is work. And you keep those things not only separate, but really be very clear about there's no exceptions. Because the right. minute you make one exception, they're all exceptions, right? And it's yeah. like, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah. So, so I've had I've had lots of fun. I go out and visit my my children. I have three grandchildren in Austin, Texas, uh, where my daughter lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. who is not fortunately were not any of those problems in their house. They had they had yeah. heat. They had <laughs> water. <laughs> they Very have lucky. solar panels on their house. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as well. So they're contributing to the grid. Um, yeah. And so I go down there and spend two weeks there and, you know, I, I keep the two things separate, but, but together. Right. And, um, have you done much work travel over this past, you know, the pandemic year 2020, or you haven't done that kind of travel you've work has been from the office more? Yeah, no, I haven't done any travel. I think the last travel <clears throat> last travel we did was in February, where we went to Baytown, Texas, um, mm-hmm. right, right right near Port Arthur and, and Houston area, uh, and held a, a meeting with some community groups around no more fac- sacrifice zones. Right, um, and that was that was it. After that, we haven't traveled anywhere. It's it's, and I've really asked staff not to travel for work because I I think that you know. If I'm willing to take that risk, I'm willing to take that risk. But the minute you call a meeting, you're putting other people at risk. But we, but we did learn how to have meetings um, differently. So we mm-hmm. have Zoom meetings, and um, we learned how to use electronic stuff that I don't even know what it is yeah. um, to help <laughs> our leaders. No, so we had this like, so the 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 folks in Houston at Ward Five, so they did this flyer that they were going to have a Zoom meeting. Well, they know nothing about Zoom meetings. This is a poor black community, no Wi-Fi to speak of. And they okay, we'll put it all together. We'll be in the background and you be in the foreground. Um, and so they, they handed the flyer out door to door and just left it on the door, did no contact uh, with the Zoom and the passcode because that's that's what you got to do, right? Right, yeah. And, and we got 89 people to come to this Zoom meeting, um, some of them on their phone, some of them on, you know, different different things um we had we had somebody who came in and bombed it drawing penises across the top of the slideshow yeah it was like (laughs) i like the the leader the leader jackie she's like lois somebody is drawing stuff on my slideshow i said yeah i know i don't know how to fix it however (laughs) so hang on a minute and so one of my younger staff was like oh i got it just give me control i'm like okay you got control um but but we you know we learned how to do that and we were you know we were 
comfortable with it. We, it was it was okay. Um, we also, you know, people wanted to know, well, how do I talk to people about this? So then we, you know, we we got a list of phone numbers and um, you know cell phone numbers like they do during the election, right. and um, and we did this all across the the state. We did this whole thing, sending uh, text messages to everybody. So, alerting them to the next meeting, alerting them to what was happening, um, asking them to sign a petition or asking them to call, call the governor. Um, and it, we get a pretty good response from that given, you know, again, when you're talking about the population we work with, these are low income communities and, and they don't have a whole lot of, you know, sophistication as it re- relates to electronics, but, you know, they figured it out and they, they managed it and, so, uh, so we've been, you know, figuring out how do we do door to door knocking without touching a door, right? And these are some of the tools that we've been using and, and it's been pretty successful. I think the only, the only real struggle was trying to get, which has always been a struggle, trying to get local community people to talk about messaging in a way that's really short and succinct as opposed to telling the whole darn story every single time. Right. Um, you know, and so this whole, we've been doing more, more and more training on messaging and consolidating your message and, you know, who you're trying to reach and who's your audience. No, your audience is not the whole world because the whole world ain't listening. So who do you need to move, you know, and, and really working on that part. That's the only part that's really been um, a little more of a challenge. People can, you know, learn the Zoom, they can learn how to how to send text messages, uh, but the messaging has been a little more challenging. When the uh, if things get better over the next year, then the staff will go back out on the road, presumably, you know, by the fall maybe, or when things are safer. Do you think you'll revert back or do a combination? Um, I think we will we will revert back. I think the best organizing, and that's essentially what we do, mm-hmm. um, is face to face, and it's it's the most powerful um, community groups who meet face to face become much more solidified as one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's no there's no way to get rid of that. And um, but I think we'll be using these other tools that we have now learned and they are learning um, mm-hmm. to add value to what we're doing. So we have plans, for example, of talking about no more sacrifice zones and then actually having a meeting. We're hoping this this next winter, uh, maybe, you know, December or somewhere around there to bring people together and really talk about. So so what was what does this look like? What would a policy look like? Um, how can we really create a change here as opposed to collecting more data about how you're being poisoned and who's being poisoned, which essentially mm-hmm. is what's been happening for decades. Right. Yep. Um, and then we have this other this other series that we're we're doing and again we're doing it all virtually now um, that we want to bring folks together again hopefully in the fall or the winter which is really talking about sort of the science piece mm-hmm. of of um toxic exposure you know really looking at for example and we've all seen this with covid right when you have an infectious disease there's actually a team of people who drop what they're doing and there's a calendar and there's there's guidance of how to go about this it's not perfect by you know we've seen that right um but but there is something there right to try Mm -hmm. and, and find where patient zero is and how is it spreading and so forth when you look at food and drug, you have the same thing. So if you have romaine lettuce that's nasty and making people sick in some town, you know, 
the food and drug stops doing what they're doing and they try to figure out where does this lettuce coming from? You know, who is it making it sick? Who's the farmer? Who's the transporter? Who's the restaurant that's using it? Whatever. When you have toxics, then you have the city who's doing something with their health department and the state does something with their health department. And then there's, of course, all those federal registries. We'll dump that information in and then we'll base the, the exposure data based on information that we collected to find out how far the chemicals have moved, which has nothing to do with exposure. It may not be the right chemical. You know, it might, I mean, it's just, it's just craziness. And so how do we develop a response plan Mm -hmm. that mirrors closely uh, what they do for infectious disease or what they're doing for food and drug when there's some kind of poison thing um and and what would that look like and how how could it operate i mean it has to be able to be independent of city state and federal epa it has to have its own budget it has to take its own samples it has to do its own science right and and so this is the other piece so simultaneously we're with no no more sacrifice zones we're also doing this other sort of series of meetings with both scientists and lay audience who are really the the frontline um folks who are exposed to these chemicals and fighting back and and so in the fall the winter we're hoping to bring them together and you know really have a a face-to-face conversation um about it you know they we say face-to-face in a virtual way, whether it's Zoom or something like that um, works. But, you know, quiet people are quiet people. And mm-hmm. if you're in a room, you can call You can call on Daniel. I haven't mm-hmm. heard from you. You're really quiet. Because I can see your face and you're really interested in what I'm talking about. You're not quiet because you you agree with everything, right, necessarily. And and. So you can't do that in a virtual world. And and so we really want to be able to do it face-to-face so we have that in-person sort of understanding and, and ability to communicate with not just the noisy people, but the quiet people as well. Right. It's interesting. Both of those projects, if that's the right term, the seem to me to be formulating new national federal ideas that can address national problems, but from the ground up, you know, conceived and designed from the ground up, which is, you know, what many groups have been calling for for a long time is the need for the ideas to come up from the grassroots rather than top down. Our federal laws are not working well, to say the least. I mean, the, they there's been some progress under some of them, to be sure, you know, the Clean Air Act, for sure, and um, super fun to some degree. But they've also uh, had years of, you know, strong resistance from industry and and the government itself and, um, you know, not a, a ton of progress. Uh, the system, I would argue, and I think you would probably argue, is not working the way it needs to, um, despite the best ideas of the people who put those laws together to really serve all those um, polluted communities. So this is a really interesting sort of next step. I, uh, it seems like it's sort of the how do we find alternatives in a, either instead of or at least in addition to you know trying to restore the superfund tax and trying to get more drinking water standards under the safe drinking water act there are other we need other models than just it's not enough just to keep doing what we're doing right and i think i think the the health one that we're looking at the science health one mm-hmm. it, we're calling it uh, unequal protection unequal response because right. it's unequal compared to other things but 
if if we had a responsive federal agency, because I don't think this could be at a state level because there's mm-hmm. just way too many conflicts, um, Flint would have never happened the way it did. Mm-hmm. All those people who are sick and the children who will never, ever, ever be able to um, grow to their birth potential because of lead poisoning mm-hmm. uh, would not have happened. And and so, you know, I the, the real bottom line to the toxic stuff is is the investigation piece of it. It's, you know, that's the part that is totally messed up. And I think it's messed up deliberately, mm-hmm. intentionally. Yeah. So they don't find anything, right? This right. is like, yeah. we're, we're against huge industry. So so the way we're doing this is exactly what you said. We're doing it from the bottom up. So for the for the health one, unequal response, unequal protection, we are having separate meetings with scientists and advocates of science and research and the, those kind of folks. Mm-hmm. And then the community leaders are over here. So the community leaders are putting the community response pieces together. What mm-hmm. would trigger a response? Who would be sitting at the table? What power would they have? What would they, you know, and then in the fall, probably before the fall, this summer, we'll bring those two things together and we'll invite the scientists and the communities to the same meeting to talk about a single document that each side had put together and how does it fit together and where where can we make it, you know, better and, and smoother? Because if we don't get the people at the grassroots, at the bottom up, then, you know, I mean, I just... I, I, I love President Biden. He gave me his watch when we were speaking together in a podium many years ago. I mean, I just That's think he's story. wonderful. Yeah. But I couldn't keep it. He, I, he just let me borrow it because I needed <laughs> it for my for my speech. <laughs> so, okay, right. Yeah, he didn't give it to me as a gift. He just I gave see. it to me. To, we were both on the podium. And so, yeah. um, but... I did, you know, I just read this whole thing about how they're going to do some investigations into environmental justice and what does that mean and data. And they had billions of dollars or millions of dollars, $92 million, some, some huge number. They're going to collect more data. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I, I could tell you, you could just go to the environmental justice screen, the EJ screen in the Environmental Protection Agency website put in the zip code of East Liverpool, Ohio, or put in the zip code of Port Arthur, Texas, or, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, where the 35th Avenue site is. And it's identified. It, yeah, it's identified. You know where they are. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you know, they, so, so to appease people who are talking about this, they keep throwing money at data collection, right. which, I mean, it's not a bad thing. But all I could think of is the, the, the folks in Birmingham, Alabama, they live by the 35th Avenue Superfund site. It's been a scandal after scandal. Literally, the state, the state representative went to jail. The law firm went to jail. The EPA regional director is um, trial is pending. He's been accused. The ADAM, which is the Alabama Department of Environmental, Environmental Management. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He also is is being indicted and and is waiting trial right now for wrongdoing in the same site. So there's five people, very powerful people, who are who have gone to jail or are waiting for their trial, yeah. right? Huge, huge, and and that ninety two or billion million trillion whatever the number is, they could buy out those folks' homes. All they want to do is move away from there. Right. Instead, what they're doing is they're scraping the surface five feet of dirt 
uh, where there's all these terrible toxics, lead and arsenic and other things, and then putting down clean dirt. And then when the wind, you know, it's Alabama. So you have wind, you have hurricanes, you have tornadoes, you have flooding, you have it all, right? And as soon as that happens, the air is all contaminated again. We start all over again. It's just, it's just silly. And the reason they don't want to do anything is because it's a Coke facility, coal Coke, not Coca-Cola Coke. Um, And, and, you know, it's nasty and it's Jim Justice's son's business. Um, And it's all connected. And, you know, Kay Ivey is just most worthless governor I've ever met. And, and so like, why are you collecting more data? Please take that money and take it to Alabama or Ward 5 in Houston. That's fine, too. <laughs> you know, there's like all these people and they don't they need nickels and dimes to, to you move. know, to stop the suffering. Yeah. yeah. To stop. So how many of the um, I mean, you've worked with so many communities over the time of um, over the life of CCHW, CHEJ. Um, how many of those communities are ones that like the folks at Love Canal wanted, you know, the solution they wanted was to move, to be essentially made whole. I mean, you can't be made whole emotionally or for the loss of that community, but as far as being able to move to a safer community and, you know, be able to afford the, be recompensed for the value of your home, things like that. What, what, I don't know, what percentage of that is the kind of cases you deal with where people who just want to get away from the toxics that are there versus, uh, you know, other scenarios where they're trying to stop permitting of a new facility or just get controls on a facility, but they don't necessarily want to leave, you know, um, what, how much of it is that? Uh, a small percentage of people actually want to move. People mm-hmm. really feel a tie to their community. They want it cleaned up. They want the industry that's polluting to stop polluting. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, over our year, so it's will be forty. Chej will be forty years in right. April. So I think we helped twenty two communities relocate in that okay. time, um, and and from all coast to coast. It wasn't just you know on the east coast or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so then, those are twenty two that six succeeded. They got to move, or you know they. Yeah. Okay. So the move well, happened. They, yeah, well, Birmingham's not so yet, and Ward right. Five not so yet, but yeah. Right. yeah. But like you know, it started with Times Beach, mm-hmm. right? So Times yeah. Beach, Missouri. I mean, there's no town there anymore. By the way, I mean, there's just, it's not even on the map anymore. Um, at in Oklahoma, you know, there's a there's a a, a mining town, Pitcher, Oklahoma, um, who had this horrible problem. They all were moved. Their school was moved. Their library moved. I mean, they're no longer on the map either. I mean, some of these places, when you really think about this, that were moved in, in their entirety, like Times Beach and uh, and in Oklahoma, they're not even acknowledged anymore on a, on a physical geographic map. It's gone. It's just totally gone. Um, you know, some of them were smaller ones where I think Kent, Washington, there was only like 20, 25 um, residents there that were moved. Um, but a lot but a lot of them were larger, like Times Beach and, and Pitcher and Texarkansas and Pensacola, Florida. And the, and the thing that we, we have found of all of these sites that have been moved um, is that they were only moved during an election year. You can go do the research on that, yeah. that, you know, it, it wasn't about how much people were being exposed to, how sick they were, whether they were dying, even though they were. Um, It was about, is the political landscape of such that it mandates that that whomever is running for office 
needs to act. So in Pensacola, Florida, it was Clinton. Mm-hmm. You know, he needed to he needed to act there. And in Times Speech, Missouri, if you remember back then, that was Rita Lavelle and Ann Gorsuch yes. going to jail. I mean, the politics of that situation was remarkable. Um, in Centralia, Pennsylvania, which was a, a, a long mine below the surface, coal mine that was burning mm-hmm. and through, the, through the surface and the homes were going to fall. That was James Watt. Uh, that was yeah. when all that craziness happened with James Watt, right? So so it's just like, you know, it, it goes back to the unequal protection, unequal response. People are yeah. actually dying. They're like they're dying of COVID, like they're dying of so many. People are actually sick and dying. Children's lives are being ruined. Um, and there's just no response for that. And it's just not right. Um, many, many of the fights we fight are also proposals. So mm-hmm. for, they want to build an incinerator or a sludge thing or something like that. And those are the easiest to fight back. And those mm-hmm. are the easiest to win. Yeah. Um, and it's because people just don't want it in their backyard and they understand. And, you know, we, <clears throat> we, uh, we invite people from other communities who had one of those incinerators to come talk to them and they can see what it looks like down the road. And they're like, people will stand up and fight back. There's few, few places that they don't win that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it is about contamination, either ongoing air contamination, ongoing water contamination, um, or leaky dump sites and things like that, or mine waste. So trying to get facilities shut down or brought back into some version of compliance with their permits or whatever it is? Well, it's not even compliance because compliance doesn't compliance doesn't work like <laughs> right yeah i mean if you have a you have seven or what is it 20 there's 24 facilities is one place that we're dealing with in in port arthur there's 24 facilities even if every single one of them were in compliance right. collectively you right. can't breathe the air right and, and that's the problem with our regulatory system it you know each pipe in each plant is like it's on a desert island somewhere and there's nothing around it that's contributing to any kind of contamination whether it's airborne water or soil and so most of these communities i remember in um uh in port was it port arthur i don't what one of the communities in in texas they were saying that there was one plant there and three generations ago, and it, people worked at that plant and felt really good about it. They got good salaries, right? They mm-hmm. had their little house, um, but their houses were kind of close to the plant, but not unreasonably so. And then the plant expanded, and then it expanded, and then it expanded. And this was the only place where Latinos could could buy homes. Mm-hmm. The other side of the, the facility, literally on the other side of the facility, uh, was where Black people could buy homes, Right. And so, so, you know, three generations, they saw this little plant that they really, they, they loved because it gave them a good job and they could, you know, prosper and grow and put their kids in college and whatever to where their property was worthless. They couldn't breathe. They had no medical, uh, you know, coverage at all. And, you know, that's what's happening. So it's, it's like our regulatory system is, is, is never worked, has right. never worked. So the sacri- no, no more sacrifice zones. Would dre- is it sounds like the concept would address that in part in that it would go beyond compliance. It would actually require ratcheting down of the. Um, it's focused on air emissions, I think, to start, and it would require ratcheting down on the air emissions until that community, the designated sacrifice go- zone, came back within the average, you know, the average amount of 
you know, air emissions in the statewide. It would bring it back into sort of the norm, I guess. Yeah, or where it should be. Or where it should be. <laughs> yes, right. The norm yeah. is really kind of nasty. Actually, yeah. what it what it does, the proposal that's on the table now, is it takes a radius. So the center radius could be marathon, for the lack of a better term, Dow mm-hmm. Chemical. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a complex of facilities. So, you know, you take the worst polluter in the middle of the radius, and then you look at who's in a five miles yep. or three miles. The, 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 the numbers have not yet been mm-hmm. determined. I mean, that's part of the conversation we're having. Yep. But you look at an air space, and then you look at things that you can get off of the EJ uh, screen on EPA's thing, like what is a cancer risk, what is a reproductive risk, right. and what is the demographics. And so if it reaches a certain percentile, which is also being co- – there's a conversation about, but if 70% of the population uh, and higher are at risk, respiratory risk, cancer risk, then it's considered a sacrifice zone. And the, and the answer to it is that all of the facilities within that radius, whatever the length is, must work with each other to bring it down so that people are under the 70 percentile for potential respiratory or cancerous. So Dow can't point to and say, it ain't me, it's him, or it's, it's them over there. It's like it doesn't matter to us who it is. Because if you don't, you don't get any more permits. Right. Your permits are not renewed. Uh, there's no expansions. There's, like, there's these things that happen if you cannot come into this. And so it's, this whole percentage, but the percentage is based on human health in a radius. Right. So, so it's not about the ambient air and what's in the air, because right. as you know, as we both know, is that today the chemical X is not thought to be a problem, and tomorrow is probably the most toxic thing we know because somebody actually studied it, right? right. Um, so, so it's really it's going to be based on human health as opposed to ambient air and containment zones and all that other kind of stuff. Not that that stuff is bad, but it doesn't protect human health. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's really. Uh, such an interesting, um, creative way to address a major gap that is preventing communities from being protected. Well, uh, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of pushback on this one from all oh, yeah. the industries, <laughs> especially, sure. especially in Texas. I mean, it's a Green New Deal that created that problem there where all the pipes got frozen. <laughs> right. Yeah, that the Green New Deal that's been law for so long <laughs> that caused the problem. You said not all 22 communities have been moved that wanted to be moved, um, but it, you've succeeded with a number of them. But it, I'm guessing in each, it sounds like in each place, that was a fight. Um, I mean, they didn't, the state or local government just didn't agree to do it. And that's, so it's, those are essentially versions of the Love Canal story being repeated, which is, you know, pretty stalwart resistance up and down the chain. Um of of just stepping in and protecting people until sort of this sweet spot of political public pressure can be reached that then they, you know, cave and and then, you know, move people and move them to a, safe, a safer place to live. Well, I mean, you tell me one idea of why Love Canal, why that was so difficult was because, you know, they didn't want to set a precedent. If they move you, they'll have to move others. And then certainly it just is a, you know, puts a, 
it's a mark on Occidental Chemical and and Hooker Chemical, at least and Love Canal, or so it could be Dow or Dupont or whomever. And you know, those are powerful industries that don't want that kind of don't want to take on that responsibility, even as far as reputation. So, do you think those are the same reasons? All you know, every community across the country where this happens, it's the same two basic problems. You know, government not wanting to set a precedent of actually having to help people, and government not wanting to you know, get on the wrong side of the powerful industries that have caused the problem? Well, I think definitely getting on the wrong side of the powerful industry is something that government resists at all mm-hmm. costs. And and that's yeah. really true. Um, and, you know, I think the precedent has been set, which mm-hmm. means there is no precedent because mm-hmm. all, all it says is you can get moved. But right. you, you it, there's not it's not you can get moved if you have 10 people who are sick or you have this level of chemical or you have there's no criteria for that, which is why it takes the politics of building the grassroots base to move the legislators to do it. You know, in Pensacola, Florida, it was 250 um, African-American families and um you know, their whole thing was a creosote dioxin dump. Mount dioxin is what they called it. Right. Um, and, you know, it was huge. You know, the when you're looking at the wood treatment facilities across this country in the south, but also in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. and how many are out there and how many of these Mount dioxins, if you will, you know, totally exist that people don't even know about yet. Yeah. And so those industries not only don't want people move, but they, but they don't want people talking about them because people are like, I got one of those and they don't want, (laughs) they don't want the studies because they know they're going to end up in court, right? They're going to end up in court with the agency who's going to sue them because they're not going to readily go in there and clean it up, unfortunately, without some kind of a threat, whether it's a federal agency or state agency. Um, So they don't, they don't want to create that. They don't want to, you know, it's just, it's, it's huge industry. And, and, our system, our electoral system is based on these same people who are paying to get them in office. I mean, it's just, you know, what is the difference between Trump and Biden? A hundred miles difference. But one of the financial differences is Trump wasn't beholden to anybody. Yeah, He wasn't. He could act like a crazy man. Because he didn't care, right? He's not going to make the oil industry mad or the chemical industry. He's not making the housing industry mad because he's into building houses, right? He he, he wasn't beholden to anybody right. where, you know, Biden and, you know, take it all the way back, Republican, Democrat alike. Yeah, yeah. They're always beholden to somebody. And in almost every other case except for lunatic Trump – they were beholding to the big industries that create these problems uh, or allow them to fester because, after all, we don't want those African-American people in Pensacola to move into Orlando where it's really kind of white and nice. Right. Yeah. So the um, racial discrimination is, a, I assume, a significant component in many, many of those cases. I mean, many of the issues you're working in all over the country. Oh, it really is. And it's, and, and the way you watch the way even poor whites get treated mm-hmm. way better than mm-hmm. people who are brown and black. I remember like in Tucson, Arizona, where um, the Latino families were arguing about um, a chemical in their drinking water, TCE, a solvent, mm-hmm. um, and this testicular cancer in young boys, high school boys. And, and 
EPA said, well, that's because of the spicy food that they eat. You know, like, how do, wow. you, how do you get away with saying something like that, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, um, you know, and it's about, it's about the way they live. It's about bad genes. It's, you know, they, but they, they have no problem, like, insulting them in, in yeah. that sort of cultural way. Yeah. Where in Love Canal, they might have said it was, you know, random clustering of genetically defected people. Okay, well, that was a sophisticated way of saying we were all a bunch of genetically damaged people, right? But <laughs> but they didn't say it was because of the food you ate. And if they were really smart, they could have said it was because of the industry you all worked in because 90% of our community worked in the chemical industry, right. in Occidental Petroleum or Goodyear Chemical or NL. And, yeah, I mean, there was tons of them, right? Yeah. Um, but they didn't. And you, you can see the way that they treat people and speak to people so differently, so differently based on their based on their race and based on their income in in uh, in Arkansas Little Rock Arkansas they said that the reason the babies were dying at an early age less than one year dozens of them in less than one year yes. was because the the parents were illiterate which was true many of them um, and they were feeding their baby Lysol really have you ever smelt Lysol? You can tell Lysol is not baby formula. This is not like, yeah, you have to be Einstein, right? But they would never say that in a white educated right. community, right? Yeah. They would say, we don't know, or or it's a random clustering of, you know, genetically defective women or something. But they would never say it was because they're feeding their baby. It's their fault, yeah. They're eating spicy food. They're feeding their babies Lysol. They're, you know, all of these different things that are just not right. And and these are these aren't just these kinds of statements are not just coming from crazy right-wing ideologues. They're coming from our government agencies whether they're state level or federal level um which is all the more um discouraging i guess i would say that it's interesting you know in your in in your books about love canal you know you describe the again sort of the huge gauntlet you had to run over and over against local state and federal government to get anything and how you were um how the community you particularly and the community were you know denied access to information and kept in the dark and you describe a fair amount of um sexism it seems that was going on at the, you know, certainly part of the dynamic, you know, the crazy housewife and or emotional housewife. But now here you're talking about other examples where on top of those types of insults, you then also have the racism. And, uh, you know, that's just that's really remarkable because your your story and the love. I mean, you, the Love Canal community story is is still an extremely powerful one. And then to 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 know, I mean, as I think some people do know and some people don't know, it's re replicated in even worse ways all over this country, you know, hundreds or thousands of times. It's it's quite something. Um, yeah. And we were we were white and we were privileged. We were not in high income by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we were white. I mean, I, I often say, and you can see the racism in Love Canal too, because I often ask people, how many have ever heard of Sarah Herbert? Mm -hmm. Nobody. All those books you read, was Sarah mentioned? 
Probably not, or if so, only in passing at best. And Sarah Herbert was the African-American leader of the Renters Association in Griffin Manor, which okay. was on the west side of the private properties of the of the canal. Yeah. And Sarah, Sarah worked side by side with us. Sarah was at many of the press conferences with us. No one ever, ever, ever did anything with Sarah. There was no, there was no soundbite. There's no video mm. of her. You go Google Sarah Herbert and Love Canal. You will get her obituary. That's the only thing you'll find. Mm. And and it's it was about here's a pretty white. Uh, pretty white woman with a child who's doing the struggle right and then you have this this rounder curvier black woman mm-hmm. and you know they don't matter but somehow you know we mattered because we were we were white and we were uh, you know it just and so you see that all the time and i and i and i often tell people like during love canal sarah and i talked about racism we didn't mm-hmm. use that word, but we talked about the difference in the way that they were treating the two of us and how um, certain members of the of the state of New York who was working on relocation and all of the testing and everything were were totally set on dividing the two of us mm-hmm. to the to the point where when I went over to Griffin Manor with my with my one of my other colleagues to do a community meeting there. There's 240 units at Griffin Manor, primarily African-American, um, and you had to have five children to get in. So it was really a family kind mm. of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went over there. Mike Cuddy, who is from the state, stopped me in the middle of the road. This is like a walk, a short walk, right? Um, and had the sheets of paper. They're, they they were sheets of records of people who live in Griffin Manor who did some kind of crime. And it was one of those accordion kind of file thing. And he lifted it up and it went to the ground. He says, Lois, you can't go over there. It's dangerous over there. And I looked at him. I'm like, what are you talking about? Their children go to school with my children. We're at the same PTA or Girl Scouts or Boy Scout meetings. They're our neighbors. Don't tell me who they are. Yeah. You know, there's bad people on the property side as much as there's bad people on the rental side. So, like... What's going? On? But but the idea that they were trying to make sure that if they had their way, nothing would have happened at Griffin Manor. They would have mm-hmm. been left behind. That was their plan. It was public housing. It's federal, state public housing, uh, or subsidized housing. Um, it, but and that was their plan, and that's what they wanted to do. And we, Sarah and I, recognized it. We were both supposed to have a uh, a space at the same Love Canal Homeowners Association office, which was an abandoned house. Sarah was supposed to have one room, and I was supposed to have the other room for the homeowners. And they said, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Why don't you go have your, your office somewhere else? And so they ended up having their office in the uh, church across the street. So, you know, there was all of these. You know, at the time, I didn't I, – we recognized some, obviously. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But I never really recognized that this is this is what systemic racism in our country looks like. Yeah. Right here in my own backyard, right? Right. I mean, these are my neighbors. We we played baseball together. They were not terrible human beings, any worse than some of my neighbors on the other side, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh another thing that you know stands out in the in the in the story is I think virtually every significant political figure uh, at that time at the local, state, and national level, well, I'm not sure about the mayor, but at the state and national level were Democrats. So there's there's a perception, I think, that uh, – I think a, a fair perception that in general, at least at national politics, 
Republicans are more hostile to environmental health protections and the laws, and they're trying to roll them back. And that, so then by, by comparison, the Democrats are you know, relatively good. They're the champions typically or have been of many of these laws, although some of them have been bipartisan, particularly back in the 70s. But then when you look at all these examples of you know, EPA actions or state health department actions that come down to actually protecting people, it's... It's it has not been strictly a Republican problem by any stretch of the imagination. There are Democratic uh, leaders all the way up to President Carter in your instance who were really I mean, okay, so ultimately he approved the relocation. But as you said, that was at the point of reelection in 1979 or 1980. And, you know, just all the pressure you all had to bring on each of those people, Governor Kerry and so on, to make things happen. So that's um I think it's an important thing for people, you know, I'm thinking of people who are just new to this or, or you know, <laughs> haven't been doing it for years to understand that you can't just assume that a, a new administration, I mean, I'm I'm curious what you feel, how you're feeling. I mean, I want to have optimism, certainly, about the new Biden administration, and they've already done some positive things, seemingly, but there's been so many examples of the Democrats coming in and, okay, not not being as bad as Donald Trump, but um, not really acting to protect people unless, you know, somehow the stars align or not the stars, the organizers align to really force them to take steps. Yeah, I think, you know, the Democrats are the Democrats are Democrats. Right. And they they I mean, you know, they make me crazy, quite honestly. Um and, you know, under under the Obama administration, the Democrats did nothing for our environment, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't like a lot of the things the administration did, um, but they did nothing. And in fact, Gina McCarthy, who was head of the EPA, um, said to our Just Moms in St. Louis, who are living, living next to a facility that could be a Chernobyl-like event. Hello? That's pretty important, right? Chernobyl? Uh, they wanted to meet with her, and she said no. She said, I'm never, I'm never going to meet with you. And it was like, why? And I remember Judith Ank, who was at the time the administrator in New York City for that region. And she, she went and said, like, what is going on? Why, why will you not meet with the, these just moms from St. Louis? <laughs> but just talk to them. No. She, she was doing climate. That's all she's going to do is climate. And, and she did. And she, you know, and I worry about climate. I mean, I have grandchildren. I care about this earth in the same sort of ways. But, you know, the minute Trump came in, he erased everything she did. Mm-hmm. Because the Democrats don't, I, I don't know what's wrong with them sometimes. I just want to pick them up and shake them. I mean, it's just, just because they are friendlier to the environment, but they are not as strategic as it relates to protecting human health. And I, and I, you know, and you can look at Superfund reauthorization as an example, the Pluter pay fee. Yeah. We own the house, we own the Senate, we own the big house. We could pass that thing in five minutes. And the advantage is it would take care of Superfund if we took the sun, sunset clause out, which means it expires at some time. Yeah, right. So if we took the sunset clause out and they passed it, it would be good forever. Yeah. It would be good forever. And how many people would that help? I mean, there's like 12,000, 15,000 Superfund sites out there and more being created every day, by the way. Right. Yeah. So what is the answer from the administration? Well, that's going to help so few people. 
Whereas if we spend a lot of time on climate, there's a bigger, it's a whole world thing. It's not even just, I'm like, never mind the world, take care of your own backyard. I mean, I'm not saying it's an either or, right? but let's put some bounds or, you know, this whole idea that they're, they're going to invest in collecting more data to define environmental justice communities, communities who are black and brown and poor and getting poisoned. You don't need more data. Like yeah. that's the not data the, is in. Yeah. The, the data is there now, you know, in, I think we really saw that when Ronald Reagan took over. This is going way back. Maybe mm-hmm. some of your your audience wasn't even around back then, and I get yeah. that. But when he was, you know, he took over and he wanted to eliminate the environmental issues or programs entirely. You know, he was talking about the bird's nest and the roof of the White House or whatever. And um, but it showed you how much the American people cared about it because as hard as he tried. As hard as he tried, and that man tried really hard, and he had charisma. He had Democrats and Republicans and independents loving him to death. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we won. He did not reverse all the things that he wanted to reverse, and people right. went to jail. Right. And and so, you know, my whole sense is it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. If we don't organize and, and speak together, unite it, you know, uh, and not not speaking together about some kind of compromised issue or level in which we really win nothing, yeah. but really say, look, here are the three things we're going to stand for. And this is what we're going to do. And we're going to go across, we're going to go across issue areas and really say, you know, what's wrong with poor and poor people and black people and brown people? Will they live in toxic? What else is a problem? They don't have health care. They have health deserts. That's right. Alabama, Birmingham. There's, they closed the clinic and the hospital. There's like nowhere for them to go. They have to send a helicopter to get people who have an asthma attack because yeah. there's no, there's no, there's no transportation. There's no clinic. There's no hospital, right? What else is wrong in that community? Well, it's also a food desert. That the only mm-hmm. thing they have is these little like Seven Eleven places where you buy crappy, you know, not healthy food. Um, and so, you know, when we look at this, like, how do we really help people in our communities, which is pulling all of us together to say we want to build communities that are sustainable, that, you know, if people can't live there, then they have to move or the industry has to shut down or tone down, whatever the case might be. Right. And then we look at all these other sort of issues. But but the Democrats will never do that. So um, they're not uh, disciplined. I, you know, the one thing I have to re- I respect in the Republican Party is if you say that elephant is pink, every Republican will say that elephant is pink. And in the Democratic Party, if you say that elephant's pink, it's like, well, it could be pink. But it might be an it, elephant. <laughs> it, it might be peach. You know, it may not be pink. What is pink? Let's study and see what is pink. How many red pigments do we need versus different colored pigment to get the pink color? Like, no, it's pink. That's something I wanted to ask you over the time of um, uh, CHEJ, when you started, well, I had a couple questions related to this, but when you started it, well, I guess I'll ask it as a question. Were you thinking of primarily situations similar to Love Canal, were you mostly conceiving it of conceiving of it as we're going to, you know, provide assistance and guidance and support to communities that are basically on top of toxic waste sites like Love Canal? Or did you, I mean, obviously know that that universe existed to some degree, but also think about at the time, at the outset about the incinerators, the leaking landfills, uh, you know, other 
many of the other types of um, sources of contamination and, and the problems that those communities have? Or did that sort of evolve as you, you know, came to learn about all the different communities? Yeah, it really did evolve. I came to Washington, D.C. to set up an organization to stop the dumping of hazardous waste and -hmm. cleaning up hazardous waste sites. I mean, that literally was what I wanted to do. And then I figured I would be done and I could retire or go to work or get a real job or or whatever. And um, then I then, you know, obviously... I realize that it's not just about toxic waste dumps, hazardous waste dumps, and cleaning them up and shutting them down, but there's all these other things. And at that time, um, there was a huge movement by the waste industry itself and the chemical industry themselves, moving all of the stuff, all the nasties, to the south. If you can remember, they were coming out of Boston, and they were coming out of the Midwest, and they were moving everything down south. And so there was this real shift, um, which really helped us try to figure out how to go about stopping hazardous waste and, I, and landfills. And I will tell you that um, we won that one. There, there has only been one hazard, new hazardous waste commercial landfill built in this country since 1982. Yeah. And it's not because it's illegal. It's perfectly legal. It's because people won't allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. But one led to the other, and then it's like, well, what about incinerators? Well, what about what about garbage incinerators? And what about you know this, that, and the other thing? And um, and we, you know, all of our campaigns were grassroots based. And I think our our best and most fun campaign was the McDonald's campaign, mm. which was really when we we're talking about solid waste incinerators and solid waste landfills, garbage landfills, garbage incinerators. We were really thinking about like, well, what is it that's going in there that's really bad? And foam, styrofoam was one of them. And how we, you know, that's how we picked McDonald's who, you know, were the, the hot side hot, the cold side cold back then and went after McDonald's to phase out styrofoam because once they do, everybody else would. And, and right. that did happen. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And then in addition to that sort of broadening of scope, I seems like over time, going back to what we were just talking about, there's also been a recognition, not just by CHEJ, but I think community-wide sort of, and it's sort of a, it's a, seems like it's an understanding that's still coming together, that's still um, getting stitched together, hopefully quickly, the recognition of the environmental issues and the housing issues and the education issues, and that all of those community components need to be addressed, you know, holistically or uh, in tandem to really get the, you know, the justice and the progress that's needed on each of them. Yeah, actually, and that was one reason why CHEJ merged with People's Action Institute. Mm -hmm. And People's Action Institute is a multi-issued organization, national organization um, that works on housing and healthcare. And and it really, I mean, you go into these communities, you realize it's the toxics is part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's only one element and, um, you know, that we really need to look at this thing holistically and we really need to build our communities holistically. And, and yeah, so that's why we're trying to uh, figure out how to connect with people who are around housing issues, people who, you know, are around health care and how do we get a health care and, and in the food deserts and the rest of them. I mean, they're all connected and, and that's the way to fix the problem at the bottom. I mean, you know, there's a lot of conversation about restoration, restoration, restitution, restitution Mm -hmm. where, 
for African American communities. Reparations, yeah. Reparations, reparations. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was a yeah. rep or something. Yeah, that was restitution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, reparations. And one of the reparations that we should do is invest in these communities that we marginalize. I mean, it was it was no fault of their own that they are living next to this refinery. They had a cute little house and the refinery was way over there and the refinery came to them and grew yeah. and grew and grew, right? right? So so what do we do? So we should invest in these communities and invest in them in a way that um, helps build a healthy a healthy community, healthy people. Mm-hmm. That would be a sort of provide so much more of the structure, not not just not polluted air and water, but the whole, uh, everything you need for those um, communities to really survive and thrive. So you, you were talking earlier about the reauthorization of the Superfund tax, which I agree should be something that they can do while doing other things. <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> um, and and uh, that would restore the flow of funding to cleaning up Superfund sites. Uh, flow of funding from the polluting industries. And then also thinking about the um, No More Sacrifice Zones project and the and the ideas that would come out of that, which would be federal legislation. You know, ideally, community groups, national environmental organizations, and others could be working. I think for each of those, they're most likely to happen, come to fruition if there's common work together. So can you say talk a little bit about your experience over the past 40 or so years on the relationship with national environmental groups and you know local community groups because i i think there's been instances of working together and success certainly the superfund the original superfund and the sara superfund uh, uh, authorization i can't remember yeah. super superfund amendment reauthorization act i think of 1986 and other there have been some good examples of national laws or or then implementation of those laws where there's been that unity. And then, you know, there's been, as we both know, times where they're, they haven't linked up together or the national groups haven't, you know, fulfilled uh, supporting the community groups in certain ways, including, I you know, I think at Love Canal to some extent. So you've been, you've been very involved in so many of those issues and conversations for so many years i'd love to hear your take on it generally yeah yeah i mean there has been some success um and i think you know the right to know is an example of that mm-hmm. uh, and that was unions as well as other enviro national groups international groups um you know so there there's been there's been some of that um i think fundamentally the problem is is that National groups and local groups really are looking at two different things. Mm -hmm. So national groups have to come up with a policy, a plan of whatever that um, is sellable on the hill. Mm -hmm. Right. That that their goal is to pass laws, regulations, make it better, somehow make it better. Um, And there's a line in the sand. Grassroots groups don't want to regulate how much comes out of the stack, which is what national groups primarily do, using that simple example. Um, They want the stack to shut down. Mm -hmm. So local groups are prevention 
national groups are not about prevention. They're about regulatory reform. And so that's fundamentally the difference. So so when you're saying, well, we can allow 10 parts per whatever to come out of the stack and we could live with that, it's like, you're not living under the stack. I am. I can't live with that. So it doesn't make the national groups wrong. Yeah. Because if they said close down all the stacks, they're not going to win anything, right? They're just going to be beating their head up against the wall. It doesn't make the community group wrong either mm-hmm. because it's not fair that they should have to live underneath this chemical that's raining down on their heads and their children's head. And so fundamentally, the 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 differences are stark and, and not always compatible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when the real conflict comes in. And I think that to answer that conflict is not to try to get one side or the other to agree to the position of the other side. Mm-hmm. The The way to deal with that conflict is to have the same messages and begin to educate those legislators. You know, Daniel's out there saying 10 parts per because that's all he can get. Not because he's bad at what he does. He's really good at what he does, but he's got to deal with 50 states. I'm telling you that that's not good enough for me. And what we need to do in our local government or in our state, and we saw this with fracking, is we Mm -hmm. need to pass stronger laws where we can. And if we pass enough stronger laws at the local or state level, the feds will line up and or Daniel will have a better chance of passing a much more successful bill. That's the way it could work. Mm -hmm. The problem is people walk into these meetings or these rooms thinking that, you know, their idea is the best idea. It's the only thing that's winnable. And all I got to do is convince you as opposed to having a conversation about, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. And I I mean, we really saw that with fracking. So in fracking, it was um, they did it in in Pennsylvania. They did a lot in New York, and they did it in North Carolina, where they banned fracking in certain counties that would be profitable to the fracking industry. And in North Carolina, the only thing left with the fracking industry were these nasty counties that weren't going to give them any profit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or a whole bunch of lawsuits, which is going to take away from their profits. And you know that changed the way people in North Carolina looked at fracking. Mm-hmm. And it helps to um, leverage regulations at the state and federal level because people are not only educated, but they also have this minor win, right? Right. Um, and and their and their local government, who's a city council, next will be a state representative, and maybe in the future become a federal rep, right? Right. And it, regardless of party, so it's really about admitting and understanding from the get go. This is the best I can get. I have to convince myself it's the best thing since individual sliced cheese to sell it. But I want you to know this is the best I can get. And the community that I understand you don't want to live underneath a a sprinkly raining of chemicals. Um, And the way you should do that is let's build that change at your local level or your state level so it can trickle up. Yeah. No, that makes uh, so much sense. I'm thinking there's been uh, uh, another example of the state um, you know, states being ahead of the federal government and driving policy, I think, is the PFOS chemicals where, uh, you know, Washington State banned the I think Washington State was the first to ban the use in firefighting foam and in food packaging. And, you know, other states have followed suit, including California. And that's definitely become a driver for action on that at the federal level. Yeah, and, see, yeah I mean, it, that's it's it makes so much sense. Right. Yeah. And the local outrage and freak out over their contaminated water across the country is also having a, like you were kind of saying, a ground up effect on federal legislators 
Republicans and Democrats because the PFAS is everywhere. It's in everybody's drinking water. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't, they're, they're scrambling more or less. That's, that's a place it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration actually comes through and, and does as much as they can. Yeah, they're, you know what they're doing? They're, it's kind of scary. <laughs> but what they're trying to do, or you may already know, is they're trying to put PFAS in the Superfund. Have you heard that? I haven't um, heard that. Booker, Booker, I don't know, a bunch of them are pushing this. Oh, um, oh yeah. Kill, I'm sorry. Kill yes. Grand, Grand to get, to get it designated as hazardous, as a hazardous substance under Superfund. So that the, uh, I think this so, is what you're talking about. That, yeah. So think about that. So why are they doing that? Because they want it designated as a hazardous waste and they want Superfund, EPA, to put a level there, a number, because there's no number now, right? right? There's guidances. There's no hard number. Superfund could put a hard number there. And I'm like, are you freaking crazy? What number you think they're going to put there? Especially under under the Trump administration, what number do you think they were thinking about? Like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> and, and more importantly, the Superfund doesn't have any money. So yes. once it gets in Superfund, it has to be cleaned up by Superfund. It, it's not it's not either or. If it's there, then it's there. And and so who's going to who's going to pay for the cleanup? And I, I don't know whether it was Booker or I don't remember who was saying, oh, well, we're going to we're going to appropriate some money from the military to go there because a lot of it's military waste. I'm like, right. you sure of that? You got a guarantee because <laughs> I, I don't see that happening. But it, it's that kind of mind blowing stuff that happens on the hill. So if you're you're in a P, so the PFOS communities are now fighting with the national groups. Why are they fighting with the national groups? Because they don't want it in Superfund. Because they know when it goes in Superfund, they got a 20-year battle cleaning it up. I mean, right. look at Superfund and there's no money. And to a certain extent there's no accountability, if you will. I mean, there is, but like 20 years down the road, right? And then the other people are saying, "Oh no, because it'll get designated as hazardous waste and then we can use that." I'm like, this is the worst plan I've ever heard. It's like who 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 thought of this? <laughs> I think part of the idea for that two things that I think people believe will stem from the designation as hazardous waste is then the DOD waste, you know, so the foam, the PFOS that's coming out from military sites. Once it's designated hazardous under Superfund, the DOD would be required to meet the cleanup standards set by the states, whereas now they're just telling the states to take a hike. So in places, you know, Michigan, I believe, and others where they, they are adopting, and I think more will, stringent stand, cleanup standards, it's sort of a, a, a thumb on the DOD to to work with the states and do that rather than just blow them off. And then also, I think the um, the designation would make them uh, subject to reporting under the toxics release inventory. So there's, there's about, there's a couple hundred that just got added to the TRI through some legislation, but you know, there's, there's thousands, I mean, I don't know that there's thousands in the U S but there's, there's many, maybe there are thousands or yeah, certainly I think hundreds. Yeah. yeah. And so those would all be subject to the um, toxics release inventory. So those, I think those are two of the reasons behind pushing for that. But I, I, um, I see your point about the, the there being some maybe unanticipated downsides. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> like what level? Like didn't didn't Maine just pass a level of it was really strong? I thought theirs was was it Maine or New Hampshire? One of the New England little states up there. Yeah. New Hampshire I know just adopted a very strong drinking water standard which then industry challenged and it's 
being played out. Yeah. Uh, when you're looking at a national standard through Superfund, really, we still don't – dioxin still is not a carcinogen by the federal government, okay? <laughs> and that I goes back gonna... to age and orange. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, let's let's do this. I think You're better off with pushing your states to do it, right? And you leveraging one state off of another off of another. And they'll all be legal challenges. There'll be a legal challenge to the federal one too. Yeah. There's, a, there's, no, there's no reason why they were not going to – go after the federal government and challenge whatever number they put down. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting that may, you know, there hasn't been a lot of national work on Superfund for a long time. The groups, you know, NRDC is doing very little work on Superfund. And I don't know if, you know, EDF or Earth Justice, I'm just not aware of too much. You know, there some groups continue definitely to push for the restoration of the Polluter pays tax and environmental working group, I think, is typically still talks about that fairly often. But it and will perks. be interesting. And the PERGs, yes, that's yeah. right. And, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if those two things, if they do become more wrapped up together, PFOS and Superfund, if that then also leads to more sort of renewed investment in the national level from national groups on Superfund generally and restoration of the tax. And both I that. Oh, it ahead. would be interesting, but I, but um, my sense over the last four years is that mm-hmm. national groups didn't want to touch it because it was Trump's thing. That's what they said to me. So so Trump chose Superfund as the thing he's going to. Oh yes, you know, that's right. At the out- he was going to move forward while he mm-hmm. dismantled the rest of the EPA and every regulation yeah. we ever thought of, right? Yes, and, and so science. yeah, in science. So so it was like. Whenever I was asking about, because I thought, well, shoot, if Trump is behind Superfund, now's the time to pass the tax, yeah. right? So I went, I went and talked to everybody, and they're like, yeah, no, we're not gonna, we're not touching it. We don't want Trump to have this victory. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is not Trump's victory. This is Birmingham's victory. This yeah. Is, and and you know, Trump's EPA as it relates to Superfund, I will tell you played the game that no one Democrat or Republican ever played before and was incredibly successful. Mm, they they went after yeah, they went after the responsible parties. And they literally said, here's a cleanup plan. It's not negotiable. Here's what it's going to cost, also not negotiable. And this is a time frame we're going to give you to agree to this. It's not going to be challenged in court. And if it is challenged in court, we guarantee you we'll sue you for triple damages. And went to Houston to to right after right after Harvey actually, mm-hmm. um, they went down to Houston to the pits there, and you know did whatever. The industry waste management international paper said we've agreed with EPA we are going to clean up this site. We're not going to challenge it in court. I'm like what? Never in my life. And then they went to St. Louis, the one I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. And they gave St. Louis exactly what they wanted. And and the industry there had to had to play. And then they went to the Portland Harbor. I don't know if you've ever been to Portland Harbor, it's a mess. But yeah. they so they put there was twenty three, twenty eight potential responsible parties. They call everybody a responsible party. Nobody was a PRP, they're all RPs. They put them all in an auditorium and did the same thing. And they said, this is a cleanup plan for Portland Harbor. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Not negotiable. This is what it's going to cost. Also, 
not negotiable. And lastly, the 23, 28 of you that are in the room are the responsible parties for this. And so you're going to figure out by September 30th how you're going to pay for it and who's paying what percentage. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. They walked out of the room, shut the door. They got a 30-day extension till October. October, they came back and they said, okay, we're going to clean it up. This is what we're doing. This is how this is how the responsible party is, you know, money has been divided to pay for it. That was just like we've never had anybody use triple damages. That's how they got 54 sites cleaned up. And and good cleanups, you're saying. That doesn't sound like just cap good it and walk up. away. Yeah, St. Louis, they're going to dig out the radioactive material and transport it out of there, away from the Missouri River and the community, obviously, and transport it to uh, a place where they're storing low-level radioactive materials. Yeah. I mean, originally, so the community wanted it dug up and put on site, above ground on site. But they, they lost that battle because uh-huh. they didn't want to take it to another community. Um, but it's going to be shipped to another community that already has it, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's that's very interesting. I didn't know that. And the assistant administrator for uh, the an EPA, it's the Toxic Waste Office. It's Office of... Um, God, I can't believe I'm blanking on all these acronyms, but <laughs> land, right. land, land and emergency land management. Right, something. right. Um, so that guy, I think, was uh, came from Dow Chemical. Am I right? Wasn't the, the Peter? The yeah, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, Peter came from Dow Chemical, sat at the table. So so P- Peter's Peter Wright is his last name. Oh, yeah. Peter Wright. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Peter sits at the end of the table and we are talking about relocation. And I said, can Peter, can we talk about relocation differently? Let's not call it relocation. Let's talk about what we can do in Birmingham, which is really about revitalization, relocation. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that where we need to relocate people, we relocate them so we can revitalize the area. Let's talk about it in positive terms instead of, then he invites me back and says, can we sit down and have a real conversation about this? And I give him a 30 page paper on, on this thing. They're like, yeah, because, because Trump wanted to do something in these contaminated communities. And, yeah. um, so everybody, including the guy from Dow, was willing to play and, and, and play respectfully. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. We had we had quarterly meetings with EPA throughout Trump's administration hmm. on Superfund. We yeah. had twelve seats at the table. So we brought twelve community members to the table mm-hmm. and they needed to come to the table with their story and a request, an ask, a demand. Yep. And and we practiced the night before and made sure they had it all down to five and a half minutes, seven minutes, whatever it was. Yep. And every single one of them got what they asked for. Really? Yeah. That's I mean, including, including the, the, the pits in, in Houston, they're going to dig them up and take them out of there. Like, who does that? <laughs> yeah. I didn't believe that was actually possible under Superfund. <laughs> No, it's really, it was, it's just, it was like, it's fascinating. It's so, you know, I mean, people got what they asked for and I mean, they weren't asking for everything, you know, yeah. each meeting you're asking for something different, but, um, but it was, it was amazing. And, and there wasn't a single national organization who asked to come, wanted to come. It was just me and my 12 leaders. Very interesting. Yeah. Huh. All right. 
Well, so get that tax reauthorized before you retire, before you I go know, to right? Lauderdale. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I can. I, I couldn't do it under who who was it? Was who was the wasn't Obama? It was Clinton. Clinton had the House, the Senate, and the big house. And he wouldn't do it. Because yeah. it was a tax. I don't want to start my administration right. off as a tax. Really? What would you like to start it off as a piece of shit? <laughs> you know, like what? Yeah. That's uh well. I guess I don't know if uh, Bernie Sanders being the chair of the Senate Budget or Finance Committee might um, change that. Yeah, I mean, it, he he would certainly be supportive of it, I imagine. I mean, I know he is. So that's another interesting thing to think about. The, you know, another thing that's evolved over the course of the time that you've been doing the work is the concern about climate change has grown exponentially. And the amount of resources devoted to it, I'm talking about in sort of the environmental world, has grown. Uh, So it's a, you know, a huge part of what most environmental groups are working on. You know, I think the toxic chemical related issues have, do not get the same amount of um, attention or support or funding. And that includes, you know, from the organizations, most of the organizations themselves and from the funding community and you know, the political world and universities. I mean, just almost anywhere you look, the, you know, in the seventies and eighties when love canal happened and Superfund happened and, um, you know, other related laws were being passed or, or, or reauthorized, you know, toxics was really kind of the centerpiece of environmental concern. And, you know, I know CHEJ has some climate related work or, you know, messaging and, and certainly, and more people are now making the connections between, well, that's the places that are a lot of the places, the facilities that are producing carbon are also producing these other toxic chemicals that are polluting these communities. And so there is sort of this climate justice idea that, that you know, you know, brings you right up to the fence line where these communities are. There's global warming, or I guess we're not supposed to say that the, the climate impacts and the public health impacts. But at the same time, you know, one of the reasons actually I even wanted to start the podcast was to, uh, in my own small way, bring people's attention also to the toxic issues, the problems of these toxic chemicals coming from incinerators, from, you know, underground, in their drinking water, in household products. I mean, that is still a very much a serious issue of healthy environment. So I'm interested in sort of your thinking about, you know, are there effective ways to marry those two things together? Are there ways to advance the toxic issues forward at the national level, at the state level, at the local level, while so much is still happening on climate, which does need to happen? I mean, no question about that. Um, Well, a couple things that we, you know, climate is critical. I like, we got to stop messing around. And, and I, and I think that, I sort of go back to remember when they used to call it global warming and they called it all the, you know, like the growing, the growing of messaging also was a growing of, of people's understanding of what we're really talking about here. Yeah. Um, and I think we're now at a place where people are talking about climate justice and, and, but we're not where we need to be in the field is most climate work has nothing to do with Port Arthur, Texas. Mm-hmm. Or Louisiana Cancer Alley, where they're making all those products that we don't want in our in our kitchens, in our bedrooms, in our in our sofas, right? Um, and I keep saying that you know, fighting this pipeline up in Wisconsin and and up north, you know, it's it's really important. But 
everything empties in the south. Everything empties in the south. And there is not only no people, other than the environmental justice people who are dealing with the, the immediate impacts of the yeah. chemicals in their backyard, but there's no money there. And, you know, I just made this argument to a funding group. I'm like, look, guys, you know, yeah, I, I want to fight pipelines, too. I'm, I'm with you. But you know what? You guys are overlooking what was contributing to, uh -huh. to this big problem. I mean, look at all the wells from the fracking industry that's putting methane in the air. And look at those communities who are drinking poison water. These things are not disconnected. And that we really need to figure out, you know, how do we bring this together and really talk about how to fix climate and you can't fix it unless you fix the south where all the industry is really if they haven't moved there they're moving there um they're moving out of the northwest still or northeast still and and so so that's one piece of it the other piece of it is looking at the social justice of climate change and what's happening in the field so when harvey hit it hit that Superfund site, which was called yeah. Pits, right. and it put mercury in people's front yards and backyards, little balls of mercury, right? That's huge. I mean, yeah. people cannot go and clean their house because they don't, they can't touch the mercury. And, and if they put all the stuff together, where do they take it? Because now it has mercury. It's toxic, right? You can't yeah. just go put it in a, a solid waste dump or a construction debris site, which is where the stuff generally goes, right? right. No, you can't do that. And and then if you go to Norfolk, Virginia, it's an incredible education. And I suggest people just drive down there um, in, in the spring or the fall during the rainy season because you will see churches and they have little signs on their marquee, no church today because of flooding. Yeah. Because if you have a high tide, a full moon and rain, the church will flood. So you had to look at the weather forecast to understand where you go to church the following week, right? It's just insane. Yeah. And and then the other insane part of it is if you are in Norfolk, in the Norfolk area there, and if you have a house that's $140,000 or more of value that floods because of sea rise, I mean, they're literally on the, sea, the seashore there, right. then we will help you put it on stilts. If your house is worth less than $140,000, we're talking the brown and black and poor people, we will not because it doesn't make financial sense to invest in a house that's of that value, right? I mean, some economists could probably make that argument just fine to sleep at night. I, you know, it gets me. But so, so what happens is the, so the poor folk who gets flooded and, and then, you know, they're, they're, their place is rotting out. It's full of mold. They can't live there. They can't. They can't leave. They can't live there. The house collapses, and then the in, and the rich people buy the property because it's waterfront dish, and then they build a house on stilts. Like, what is wrong? I mean, so even and, and and when you talk to the people who are fighting climate over in the Norfolk area, it's like, well, we got to put the houses on stilts. We've got to do the adaptation. I said, yeah, but it's got to be adaptation for everybody, not yeah. only. For those who have money and who have access, right? So, right. so climate is so connected. You, you know, you you can go to the methane wells from fracking. You can go to Cancer Alley. They're calling it Death Alley now. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, um, you can go to Port Arthur. You know, you can go anywhere, Houston, and just see why we have a climate problem. And the truth is, we could still make some of those products. 
without putting all that stuff in the air. It goes back to how much are we allowing in the air and why and what is it based on? And is anybody looking at the cumulative impacts to both, you know, humans and animals and environment right. from this? I mean, so it's not like, you know, like they say we have to go back in our cave. No, we can still have our cell phones and they still have whatever they have, but we're doing it in a way that is much more protective of the, you know, the earth as well yeah. as its habitants. You, CHEJ has, seems like an active intern program, uh, internship program, and a lot of, you know, interested young people, people interested in toxics and environmental justice working with you. I was impressed by the number and and sort of their backgrounds. You know, they're contributing to your blog. They're writing about different issues. It's it's really compelling. And uh, I'm interested in sort of how that, how you're, how they're finding you or how you're finding them. Again, a lot of what younger people are learning about, and again, it's super important, our energy and climate, but there are all these toxics-related issues that also need young people to take to take up the mantle, right, as, as we, <laughs> as we, you know, move on, move back to the beach, so, um, <laughs> or wherever. So, you know, how are you going about, how are you all going about recruiting those interns, and, um, and you've had, I don't know how many classes of those interns, but then do you find that they're going out and continuing the work in different ways? Yeah, most of the interns we have, we get from word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, young people talk to young people and they, you know, they go to school and say, man, I had the best, the best internship or, or whatever. So word of mouth is huge. Um, we have connections with a number of programs at in Northeast and at, you know, different schools, BU and mm -hmm. uh, Stanford and so forth. Um, so, you know, professors there are, are always recommending that they check them out. I mean, that's another way to get them. But word of mouth is probably the, the biggest way. And and what interns like. So so it's not just about recruiting them because you can recruit a bunch of interns. And if they have a miserable time, they ain't coming back. And they're going to let everybody know at every school they ever visit that you were the worst thing since individually sliced cheese, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what we do with our interns is we really – they're almost independent. I mean, they're not. They're they're totally supervised, but but they're given independent projects. The the idea of no more sacrifice zones um, came from four interns, who oh. yeah, they met in. I presented the problem. This is the problem. We need to figure out how to deal with it. And so they met all week long. They went back and forth. They bannered things. They researched things. They wrote papers. We would meet on every Tuesday, and it's like. And no, go back to the drawing boards. That's not it. And, and, you know, the idea that they could work independently and try to solve a social problem as yeah. opposed to, you know, can you research this about what's in my sofa over here so that we can do a blog on it or something, you know, that, that, that they do as well, but that's not their main thing. The main thing is they're given a project and they're given an idea and they're giving a, a situation which they have to come up with some ideas to solve. And of course they can't solve all the ideas, but, uh, or situations, but, but they, they're intellectually stimulated by that. Yeah. And that's what they really like. Our communications people, and they're the ones who started the living room leadership this yes. year when we, yeah. yeah, it was really good. We couldn't go out in the field. So they're like, well, let's have, let's bring the leaders in. I'm like, okay. Um, and so that was their project. They, you know, and it continues today. And, and so, 
um, you know, they're, what I really like about them is they bring these different sets of eyes and philosophy to the table. And they also could fix my computer, which doesn't go without notice. <laughs> but but they come in and they're like, well, why is it like this? And I said, well, it's always been like this, and this is why. And so how do we change it? You know, well, it doesn't make any sense. Well, what would make sense? And then let's figure out how we can talk about what does make sense. Yeah. So, so I think and, – and we put them in the field. I mean, obviously not this year because of the pandemic, but um, – Two of our interns went to Baytown in February with us. Mm. They led a small group conversation. Um, and so they were they were both empowered with real people in the field where they could actually touch and see what they were studying and thinking about, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, they're supervised and not tightly supervised, but, you know, depending on the situation. And I just, I really appreciate it. Maybe they bring so many great ideas and just a whole different way of thinking. Um, you know, I'm old and I have one way of thinking and the young people have a totally different way of thinking about these things. And yeah. I just think that is so good and so, so practical in today's world. Yeah, when I when we went up to the hill, so we, we take them up to the hill oh, too. I, yeah. I mean, we don't do lobbying right now, but we do education, and so yeah. we take them up the hill and let them like you know go to a legislator and just, especially if it's their legislator, right? Because they're from all over the country, you know, go and talk to to him or her about this, and then like, like he wasn't even paying attention to me. He was like, <laughs> I'm like, well, how do we meet him next time and make sure he pays attention to you? What yeah. would you suggest you do? I'm going to tell him to put his damn phone down. That's a really good idea. Or give it to his assistant in case there's an emergency he needs to know. About. You know, it's like, you know, most of us go in there and we know we're just walking the dog, right? So <laughs> so we, we're not so involved in, you got to listen to me, man. I got this really important thing to say to you, which we should. We shouldn't yeah. go in there like we're walking the dog. But, you know, after yeah. 20 years, it's like I'm walking the dog, you know. All right, Corey, what are we doing here? You know, uh, and I and that's what I mean. It's just sort of it's fresh and it's new and and they're not afraid to challenge. I mean, I think when I was coming into this field, you know, I'm I'm a big risk taker. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I was never really aggressive which is a different thing right mm -hmm. and so if someone said sit down honey i would sit down you know i wouldn't like how and you know and like they're not like that they sit down honey i'm not a honey my name yeah. is lois i would prefer that you call me by the name my mother gave me you know yeah. okay you know they're just they're just different breeds and they're and, and i think it's refreshing do you think it's still true that you know a lot of the progress that you all made at love canal I think, you know, I, I think because I, you said this in your book, it's not my own independent thought, um, you know, came from doing things that created a media, attracted the media, created attention, um, die-ins and, you know, bring the coffins, uh, including a child-sized coffin to the um, state house in Albany and a lot of different things like that. I mean, not, I mean, not confrontational in a rock throwing way or a Molotov cocktail throwing away, but, but, a you know, a confrontational, you know, uh, you're either playing their game, which is the bureaucratic, you know, I'm following each rule and I'm having my meetings and you went to a zillion meetings in that two years at Love Canal, but, but it's also their, their arena for stonewalling and they're successful in doing it. And the things that, that on, on our side that, can overcome that are, as we talked about earlier, even the political imperative and the opportunities that creates 
And then playing outside of the sort of agreed upon, we will come meet in your office, we will have this, whatever. And, you know, do you, do you still think of that as part of your toolbox, I guess, or CHEJ's toolbox or your, the groups you support's toolbox? Is that still a, a vital piece? Is it one of the most important tools being uh, ready to do those kinds of things? Yeah, it is very important. And we teach that. We teach it everywhere. We, we, you realize, we realize very early on that people first have to walk the dog. They have to go to the meeting. They have to, they have to do mm-hmm. these things until they realize that's not getting them anywhere. And at that point, you can introduce these other concepts, but they won't start off by protesting, right? But, right. but they, because they have to have some experience, but it's something we, we train all the time. It's like, you know, this is a political fight. This is not a scientific fight. It's not right. a fight about rights. It's a political fight. And if you don't create enough pressure on that political person who can make the decision you want to make that decision, it's never going to happen. There's no magic fact. There's no magic thing. And, and it takes people a while to get there. But once they get there, they do really well. My, my, my favorite story is the, the women in South Carolina who said the, the governor was coming. They wanted to stop something. So they were opposing a landfill from coming in or an incinerator or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, he's coming in for a ribbon cutting of your clinic. You know, this is an opportunity. And they're like, oh, no, we're in the South. You know, the ladies in the South, they like, okay, well, you're missing an opportunity. And he said, well, we can't protest. Well, what can you do? We can have a parade. There you go. Decorate the bicycles and the buggies and have a parade. And on the side of the bicycles and the buggies, say, Governor, don't let this thing ruin our community that you just cut the ribbon for this clinic or whatever it was. And then the ladies did it. And then afterwards, it was like, whoa, that was really fun. When are we going to have the next parade? So the other thing about it it was it really bonds the community together. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, we also teach people that not everybody's going to be part of that parade. Not everybody's going to agree to that. They're going to think it's too radical, too crazy. And if you can think of something for them to do, that would be really helpful. So we usually do like a, a prayer vigil or candle thing somewhere else for the folks who feel like this parade or protest was too much, that there's something. And, and we did that at Love Canal. We did the Walk of Concern around Love Canal with our religious leaders while we were taking coffins to Albany the following week. So there right. was, you know, there was something for everybody. And I think that's what people um, don't think deeply about. They, they're like, maybe they're maybe they're the conservative ones and just do the things with the religious leaders and the other people are like not happy with where the the organization's going that you really need to think about there's three types of people there's the real radical crazies out there and you got to find them something to do or they're going to hurt you and something mm-hmm. they're gonna do something stupid and it's going to come back to you there's a, the 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 ones who want to go do something to march or something and then there's the conservative ones and so you need to think about all three and what are the roles for all three and how do you control what they do in a way that protects the organization and advances yeah. the political agenda and, yeah. and and so we do teach that a lot. And, you know, people at first are like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like, and then afterwards, it was cool. I think in in, um, in Georgia, <laughs> around a facility there, this is African-Americans, very poor. They used to be cotton pickers. Mm-hmm. And then we don't pick cotton. We don't grow cotton anymore in the United States. And so they live in these little tiny houses and, and they wanted, they want to build a nuclear power plant there. But the community said, we have all this land. We can't use it. You can't walk on it. It's so poisoned by the cotton industry as you so many chemicals have to be used to grow cotton it's just 
amazing. It says yeah. no human access on the fence. So we were talking about, well, maybe this could be a solar farm. You all could get employed mm. by putting together the solar farm, managing it, whatever, because nothing else can happen on this property. And it's about energy. And so these folks are like, well, we can't, we, we can't go to the regulatory meeting and stand up because if we do, we're black and we're in Georgia. They're going to cut our tires. They're going to, you know, they, they really do do that stuff even today. Yeah. Um, and so I said, well, what can you do? Two days later, it took us two days to get to this solution. But two days later, they went to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission meeting. 250 of them showed up. And they had their preacher. Their preacher was the first one to speak on the agenda. He stood up. He said whatever he had to say. And he began singing a hymn, a Bible hymn, church yeah. hymn. And, of course, in the South, when you sing a hymn, everybody has to stand up. So all 250 people stood up. Plus the polluters stood up and the yeah. nuclear regulatory guys, everybody, you just have to do that it, culturally. And so they, and, and so they sang two hymns and then they all walked out and, and it was the most powerful thing that they have ever done in their whole life. And, you know, so, so those, those things are like, that's a radical, radical, crazy thing, but it wasn't one person. It was many. And it was a church thing as opposed to shouting or t-shirts or, yeah. You know, so really, we we work we work really hard to try and find something that fits, and it and it comes from them. We don't put ideas out there, but you know, eventually they find something. Yeah, that's um, that fits so well with something I was thinking about, which is, you know, two of the things that I think you describe very well about Love Canal and were, <clears throat> excuse me, um, kind of key elements of your success were solidarity and creativity. And those two elements are, I don't know if those are common to every successful campaign, but certainly they were two of the, the most important things that you um, describe in, in, in your book uh, about Love Canal and sort of not just that it all went perfectly. You, you, <laughs> you really had to work on maintaining that solidarity, like you said, with sort of the different types of people that were involved with different views and, and um, different instincts, and then constantly finding ways to, you know, to penetrate the, the basically wall of, of um, indifference and hostility that was coming from the state and the local and federal government. Yeah, no, that's really, it's really true. And I think that's what people have to understand is we're not all one we are very different people in every, but every community has very different people. And, mm -hmm. not, and if they walk and talk and, and everyone in your group looks the same and you got a club, you don't have a movement. Right. And, and so you really need to think about the little old lady with the cane and you need to think about the big burly man with the gun hidden in his back pants and, and the, you know, and the mom and the three kids, like that's what a community looks like. Whether you right. agree with who they are or not is irrelevant. And, yeah. and, you know, like you don't have to go to dinner with them. What you just need to do is figure out how to move forward together with the same sort of um, mission and goal in place. And, and it's not easy because a lot of people just roll their eyes. Oh, you're just such a, you know, a dumb bunny, you know, or whatever. And it's like, no, you know, this is part of your community. Right. Uh, how many um, how many calls is CHEJ getting on the average in a month or a year to, for help, you know, how many groups reach out for some form of assistance? 
Uh. Well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that anymore because actually people aren't calling. They're using the emails. And, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and stuff like that. And some are calling and then um, – but, but we get new groups every week. So mm-hmm. – and, mm-hmm. and I say that in a very loose way because somebody will say I have a group and it's really them, their husband, or next-door neighbor – Right. want to do something, <laughs> right? right? And, and then help them move to a few more people. Uh, you know, and we have rules and we have triage. It's like, well, if you can bring five people to a telephone call, we can all have a conversation together. But if it's just you, your husband, your neighbor, you know, there's not much we can do for you. Yeah. And so, so, you know, then we have groups who have been around forever, like, like you know, in New Jersey, the Ironbound Community Corps. Oh, yeah. we, we had just had them on one of our, one of our series, our, our, leadership series, you know, shall not, you know, they just passed a law that says not you will consider local government, you shall not permit another facility if this, these things happen. And, you know, we were working with Ironbound for 37 years. Yeah. So, you know, in different phases. I mean, we haven't done anything with it for a long time and all of a sudden we're doing this. So, so it's all different groups of Groups and yeah, around around twelve to thirteen thousand groups. I think is is what we calculated at one time based on our database. Yeah, um, and you know, one that's an incredible number for a couple of reasons. One, just how much work you've done to support support other people uh, in these in these you know struggles that they've had is remarkable. And it's on the flip side, it's also just incredible how many of these situations there are all over the country. There's tens of thousands of these problems, whether it's a super fun site or something that's a toxic waste site that isn't quite enough to make it onto the super fun list, which is the worst of the worst. You know, incinerator fights, siting issues, fence line it's 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 a largely hidden i mean it, i mean there are occasional there's some coverage and there's some reporters who you know focus on it either a local fight or you know Sharon Lerner or somebody like that at the intercept but but in general considering the scope of the problem and the number of people affected and how serious it is it's 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 pretty under the radar which is another problem i mean it's I, under the radar because it's black and brown people it's under the radar because they're poor people yeah. It's under the radar because who owns who owns ABC, NBC, CBS? Who owns the Washington Post and New York Times? You know who controls what goes on? I mean, I've I've wanted to for a long time look at public housing. How much public housing is on old old contaminated sites across mm. this country? Right, and that is state and federal money paying to build these public housing. Um, and you know, we saw what happened in uh, East East Chicago, Indiana, mm-hmm. not Illinois. Yeah. Um, and you know, like that's a that's a whole set of problems that aren't even nobody's looking at. And you know, they're independent of one another. We've seen it in the Navy Yard here in D.C. We see it in mm-hmm. in uh, Indiana, Illinois, whatever. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of problems out there. And because they're because they're seen as not important communities or not important people, or as the government says, Newt Gingrich, I think, began it with a, like they're not worth it. They're not yeah. worth spending money on. You know, it's it's just it's sad in the richest country in the nation that we're really thinking about that. And you know, and you see that today 
when you're looking at the COVID vaccines. Why aren't black and brown people getting the COVID? Well, because they've been messed with by everybody who has tried to help them for how many years, right? Is there any security if I'm a brown person and I'm not, and I'm not in this country legally? that I have to show you my driver's license, tell you where I live, and I have to come back for a second shot, and you're not going to call ICE? Why would I believe a white man telling me that? You no, know, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. and, 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 then, and then this whole thing about they don't understand why black and brown people aren't coming. Yeah. And we need to do better outreach. No, you don't need to do better outreach. It isn't about your words. <laughs> it's about your history. And right. what are you going to do to stop giving them words and give them something that they could feel comfortable with, right? Yeah. You know, but they're not. And and so, you know, this doesn't get coverage. You know, climate has taken over. The most environment is climate now, and yeah. it is connected. But they don't connect it in the newspaper again. For right. The- for all the same reasons, um, and it's really, it's really sad. It is the hidden, the hidden story in the country of what we are doing to the lowest rank of people in our society. Yeah, it's toxics, it's food deserts, it's health deserts, it's you know, it's Housing. sad. Yeah, you know, not everybody who was uh, a part of Love Canal spent the next 40 years as a organizer and activist helping communities all over the country. Why do you think you're the one and you're not the only one? Cause I know other people came to work with you, but I mean, you're certainly the leading figure. Why do you think, what do you think it is about you or why that's the path that your life ended up taking? I don't, I don't really know that I've been asked that like a gazillion times. Okay. But, and I don't know. I mean, I, I came with a mission to make sure other moms didn't have to suffer the way I did with my children being sick and stop hazardous waste landfills from being built and clean up the ones that are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would be done. I never looked at it as a career. Mm-hmm. But then once I started doing it and I, and you know, people, I love people. I'm a people's person, right? Which is why this pandemic's making me crazy. Um, but, you know, when when I go to these communities and see how brave these communities were, and I was learning from the communities. They, they thought they were learning from me, and, and to a certain extent, I'm sure they were, but I was learning from them. And, you know, it just became really uh, in my blood because it was sort of, it was a lot of work for sure, but it was also really interesting and many times fun, right? Yeah, yeah. And doing this stuff and and facing these new challenges every single community at the beginning I had no experience I you know I was a high school graduate um, and so I think it just got in my blood and here I am <laughs> yeah were there things I know you've said that I you know I was just a high school graduate and you know a housewife but there's certainly I mean you are absolutely one of the most intelligent people I've met, but also, you know, your tenacity and your creativity and your organizing, all of that came out at Love Canal and has continued ever since. Was that, are those traits that you got from your parents? I know you're from a fairly big family, a lot of siblings. I don't know if you're the oldest or where you are in the birth order, but is there, are there things you got, do you believe from your particular family uh, environment that contributed to, you know, the character traits that, you know, have then led you all this way? I think a couple things. My father was in the union 
and mm-hmm. he was very active. So the idea of people coming together for collective bargaining, um, you know, so he could get, he worked in the steel industry. He was a, a bricklayer in the brick in the ovens, uh, really hard work. And so yeah. that sort of taught me about people coming together. It was subtle. It wasn't ever a teaching, but it was there at the, at the table. Yeah. My, and my mother was really a wonderful human being who I had to say my father was prejudiced and racist and all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother would always, after he left the room, say, actually, he's wrong. And, and then, and she would defend people of different colors, people of different incomes, you know, but she wouldn't defend them like in a a court kind of thing. She would just say, she would tell a story about a person who was brown or a person who was black or a mom who was big or a mom, you know, and, and, you know, she helped me understand that, you know, although he, he was who he was, um, you know, that really everybody has something of value to bring to the table Mm. and, and they're all very different. And, so, so, so that I think was really meaningful to me. My mother just loved everybody. And so that taught me to love everybody in a weird kind of way. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm a middle child. So there, uh, I, okay. yes, so I'm a middle <laughs> child. I wasn't the, the youngest. I wasn't the oldest. I was a middle, I actually started a middle child club that <laughs> it's really, it's like, cause when you're in the middle, it's like, nobody even knows you're there. Right. Yeah. And so the creativity is like, how can I be there? Well, you got to do something. So people are like, Hey, Lois is at the table today. You know, <laughs> look, who came to, you know, so, so middle, middle, I think also matters. Okay. So we'll, we'll, maybe I'll do a survey of who, who the middle, which of, which of the people, the activists are, are middles. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it would. I'm sure you've been asked this as many times as well, but are there um, particular things that stand out for you as as signal accomplishments that you feel particularly good about? And similarly, are there any particular, you know, losses or disappointments or things you wish you had done differently? I think the single biggest accomplishment of Love Canal um, there's really two, but the biggest one is that we actually collectively um, helped the world to see and to embrace that low-level chemicals in an environment could harm everyday people living there. That it, Back then, it was just workplace exposure right. uh, that people ever talked about in, in standards with OSHA and so forth. And we brought this new sort of science to the table. And it was, you know, it's a hypothesis, I guess, at the time we brought it to the table. But, you know, here is something we need to pay attention to. Here is something that's really hurting, especially pregnant women uh, and the most vulnerable amongst us. And I really think that was a huge accomplishment. So it wasn't just moving away from toxics, but it was really raising the issues of chromosome damage and reproductive outcomes and and right. I think that led to a certain extent to some of the future um, policies that were passed, not by us, but by workers and, and saying women can't work in certain parts of the plant during the first trimester or any trimester of their pregnancies and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I think that was one of the things industry worried most about, that if there was a, a link made between human health impacts and chemical exposures, especially in a 24-hour low-level thing, then, oh my gosh, what is that going to do to all of our standards in the workplace? And, and I think that was really an important, an important um, breakthrough for us that, 
that we brought to the table. And I also think showing that, you know, my husband made $10,000 a year. We were not wealthy people, but we were fine. Um, and that, you know, everyday people standing together could not, you know, not just make change for their local thing, but we created worldwide change. Yes. You know, the health stuff, the super fun. Um, and, and we did that by standing together, speaking out and, you know, really staying focused. And, you know, that's what democracy is really about. Democracy mm-hmm. is about what happened at Love Canal. You know, that, that the people matter and the people working the system and, and beating up on the system, as the case may be, can actually achieve major, major accomplishments if they stand together. And I think those are the two things I'm most proud of in, in you know, Love Canal and sort of teaching that as I move forward through the Center for Health, Environment and Justice. I think there's a ton of mistakes that I've, that I've made over the years. Um, and, and I think that those are part of my learning. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, one of the first mistakes was going out to communities and telling them what to do. Like, who am I to tell them what to do? And instead of listening to them and helping them figure out what to do, that, you know, my arrogance, when I first started, I was pretty arrogant thinking like, I, hey, we did this, I can do anything, right? And it was wrong. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I learned that very quickly. I was brought to, brought to my knees by the community who said, what are you, crazy lady? Um, and then I see it a lot out there with other people who are going out and helping communities by saying what they should do. And right. I'm like, uh, no, that's, that's just really bad. I, I did that. <laughs> it was wrong. I backed out. But I, but I think that that was, you know, one, I think that was one of my biggest mistakes and my biggest learnings was that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the other biggest learning, which was, I mean, everybody makes the mistake, is believing that government is there to protect you. That mm-hmm. you play by the rules, you work hard, you know, you pay your taxes, whatever, whatever. Um, and there's something really wrong that they will come and, and save you. And that's just so not true. And that, that was devastating, actually, I have to say. That was really devastating. I, you know, when I learned that and understood that at some point in the middle of Love Canal, I was in bed for three days. I told everybody I had the flu because it was like, how can this be? Because I grew up in a family who, you know, believed in hard work. My daddy was in the union. My mom was taking care of us. She's a full-time mom, you know. And it's like, how, how could this be? How could people be dying? How could, how could little Julie be born dead and and somehow that's okay and no one's going to come in and you know she did nothing wrong it was so out of her control right and that was that was really hard I saw that the I guess it was in 2008 something like that the New York New York State Health Department finally affirmed or confirmed what you all had said in your original door-to-door survey in 1978, that that was all acknowledged, it, even though... Yeah, well, they not only said it was all true, the 56% birth defect rate, Yes, but the other thing they said was, was new information, which was that our children, so people who had children born already at Love Canal, those children were having children with birth defects at the same rate. That was pretty frightening. Yeah. And then and then um, I think it was Dr. Freed was in charge of the study at the time for health, the New York State Health Department. And then I said, well, could it be endocrine disrupting chemicals? You know, what it, 
you know, how does this happen? And he said, he had, you, we had to wait until my daughter's daughter has a child. It has to be three generations because my daughter was, was at Love Canal. So their eggs, women are bought, you know, born with their eggs. So yeah. her eggs were exposed to something. Right. And so, so it's, you know, when Anna has a baby, you'll be able to find out whether or not it was endocrine disrupting chemicals. And I'm thinking like, holy moly, this is three generations before you can get a simple answer. Like what's going, what's happening? Why are over 50% of the babies, both of our children and our children being born with birth defects? And there's no answer. Lois, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time. This is really a wonderful conversation and um, good luck with the, with the rest of your sabbatical and whatever comes after that. Yeah. Um, I'm not working in mine like you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Right. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Yep. Take right. care. Bye-bye. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers podcast.